Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. You're listening to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today I'm speaking with Andrea Bonin Blanc, the founder and chief executive officer of GEC Risk Advisory, LLC. Andrea's career spans many different areas, from law firms to general counsel and global chief ethics and compliance officer at several companies to founding her own firm, GEC Risk Advisory, six years ago. She's an ethics advisor and counsels business, nonprofits, and government agencies. She's a member of different boards and someone with many, many interests, including being an exhibited artist and photographer. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm excited to be here. So it's first for starters, it would be really hard for me to go to go through your background and do it justice by by saying going through it myself. Could you just talk a little bit about how you got to where you are? And you've gone from a New York based law firm in the 80s to building your own business in global risk and compliance. Well, it's been a pretty long journey. Uh, let me start at the beginning. Um, so my first job was on Wall Street in the era of greed was good. Uh, if people remember Wall Street, the movie kind of defined the times. And I worked for a couple of big uh, Wall Street-based law firms at the time. My specialty uh, ended up being more transactional M&A, project finance. And so I was lucky to be approached about a general counsel job um, for a startup subsidiary of a very big company, PSEMG, the New Jersey Utility, they decided they wanted to participate in the development, building, constructing, and uh, operating electric power generation and distribution around the world. So I became their first general counsel for the global division and um, basically uh, had a fantastic experience there, mainly because I, I had some really great um uh, leaders that I that I reported to, the CEO, uh, who was the CEO for the first time, and then the board of directors, which is a luminary board of directors of uh, CEOs from major uh, global companies. And so that experience um, not only allowed me to de develop my skills as a general counsel, but almost more importantly, in a sense, uh, looking back, uh, developed skills in areas that I find much more interesting, um, <laughs> if I dare say so. Uh, such as ethics and risk management, crisis management, corporate responsibility, all these sort of quote-unquote squishy things that are so important to doing business, which um, sometimes the financial side of the, of the business doesn't always appreciate as much as they should. So basically, I spent seven years at PSENG Global developing and building their programs out uh, from soup to nuts, code of conduct, ethics training, FCPA programs, uh, basically building an ethics and compliance program without having any models because in those days, in the mid-90s, there wasn't much out there. Um, but I had a wonderful board I reported to who uh, actually encouraged this kind of work uh, within our company. So we, I, I, I'm proud to say we had a good ethics and compliance, crisis management, and risk management program. From there, I moved to Bertelsmann, a, a very large global uh, German-based media company where um, they basically had six divisions, 100,000 employees, uh, 600 business units around the world in about 60 countries. And there, um, I was hired to be the, the founding global ethics and compliance officer. And it was a six-year period where I had four different bosses. Um, 
And uh, the the final one I had was the best one in the sense that he really uh, empowered the building of the global program in a very serious way, which uh, had not happened uh, with the previous three bosses. So I I learned some very, very important lessons about the importance of leadership, tone from the top, uh, support from the top, and um, helping, you know, interconnect the pieces within a company because I ended up working with people who before this uh, leader empowered me to do so, uh, wouldn't give me the time of day. So it was a really fascinating experience building the global program and then also sort of reaching out to all these other key players that make your program successful. I went on to a couple of more roles, one as a general counsel and then the final one as a chief compliance audit risk uh, and corporate responsibility officer for a technology company just under a billion in revenue, international and uh, publicly listed, that had had some troubles uh, coming out of a restatement, and they needed somebody to build up their programs. And within the six months of starting that program, they also threw in information security and cybersecurity uh, under my wing, um, which uh, opened up a whole, <laughs> a whole other kettle of fish, shall we say, in terms of things to think about. And this is back in 2011, 2012, 2013. I left that firm um, uh, more or less because I had to, and I'll leave it at that. Um, and at that point is when I decided uh, I needed to go to the other side, meaning a, being, becoming a consultant, which had been something I had never contemplated. But because I love so much what I do, the ethics and compliance and, and crisis and risk management, um, I really wanted to continue to do that. So I said, okay, I'll do it as a consultant. And I woke up one day. Uh, after sort of being out of the corporate world for about three months. And I said, okay, I'm going to start my own business. And I still remember the day it was January 3rd, 2013. And since then, I've had um, incredible uh, luck. I've worked really, really hard, never never harder. And I used to think I was a hard worker. Um, and I, um, I've been extremely fortunate to have a wonderful network of friends and professionals that I know and opportunities that I've been able to take advantage of. So I'll leave it at that. That's sort of the arc of what I've been doing. I also do a lot of writing and speaking, and I've just uh, finished writing my latest book, which will come out in the fall. But uh, other than that, uh, I've, I've been waiting for things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing is, you know, why don't we just talk about your book for a minute right now, then we can talk about it. It's at, at titles, Gloom to Boom, How Leaders Transform Risk into Resilience and Value. And how do you find that, you know, that, how is that valuable for new ethics and compliance officers or professionals or others in the field um, talking about sure. it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for um, asking me about the book. Um, basically, I wrote the book because I had to. It was basically the culmination of all a lot of thinking and, and doing and writing and speaking that I've done over the last 20, 25 years. And um, I kind of see it as my sort of um, way of of knitting together everything that I've done and that I see that we do uh, in our corporations and organizations, et cetera. And sometimes we do it in isolation. Sometimes we do it without the support that we need. Sometimes we do it without the tools that we're supposed to bring to the table. So what I try to do with this book is take a sort of a journey. Uh, it's called Gloom to Boom for a reason. I'm trying to take the turbulent times that we're living in right now and uh, take leaders uh, on a journey through their most important ESG, so the Environmental, Social, and Governance, and I've added a T for technology, so the most important ESG and T, uh, strategic issues and topics, um, to, to help them uh, see how they are so important to be connected back to 
the business of the organization, the mission, vision, strategy of the organization. And it really is for all kinds of leaders. It means ethics and compliance people. It means general counsels. It means, you know, anybody else who is in a leadership position in an organization, including, of course, CEOs and boards, especially CEOs and boards, because I think they need to really understand and appreciate the ESG and T issues that we have in this world, which really have an effect on how we do business, uh, how well we do business, how we make money, how we lose money, uh, how we uh, enter new markets and so on. There should always be a strong appreciation for ESG and T issues when uh, businesses are just doing their business. And so I, I'm hoping that the book will help uh, the ethics and compliance community and others think about their job as part of this larger whole. Um, the book ends with a couple of chapters um, trying to offer sort of a model of organizational resilience that has eight elements. And I have, you know, um, different kinds of organizations, depending on how well they've developed these elements and ethics and compliance is a very important piece of that puzzle. So you get to see sort of how that all fits together. Um, but it goes back to governance and culture and stakeholder management and uh, self-improvement and all these things that we talk about. So I try to put it in a, in a context of, of um, rational sort of understanding. And I try to simplify, I think, uh, what we all consider quite daunting sometimes. And then finally, the last chapter talks about the value of values, not just the value of financial returns, but the value of the of values, meaning uh, a strong ethical culture, um, uh, treating your stakeholders with care, customer care, uh, the ethics and compliance programs. These things create value in the long term for organizations. So I quote a bunch of different studies that are out there that are trying to create a quantitative look at the value of values. Um, although I think that at the end of the day, some of these things will never be measurable, but that we can certainly get some metrics around that. So I'll leave it at that uh, and stop here so that I don't keep talking. Well, and also so that people, making sure that people have heard just enough. So that's the teaser so that they, you know, read the book. So, well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) With that, I'm going to, I'm going to actually talk about one of the things you were talking about are values and culture and and boards. But one thing is you are actually advising a really interesting board and you're the ethics advisor to the financial oversight and management board for Puerto Rico. Um, The board was created in 2016 to support the um, economic growth and restore opportunities there. Can you speak a bit about what the board does and what you do as an ethics advisor? And, you know, we recognize that some of that work is necessarily confidential, but it's a very interesting area. Yes, it's really an outside of the box kind of a situation for many different reasons. So the, as you said, it was created in 2016 uh, through a congressional uh, law basically uh, called PROMESA, um, which basically tried to provide an oversight board and a mechanism for the um, Puerto Rican government to uh, help negotiate themselves out of a very large debt position. Um, for those of you familiar with the, with the history, there was about 70 million in uh, debt coming due, 70 billion, I'm sorry, of debt coming due, and then another 50 billion of pension debt. And uh, it was basically going to lead to bankruptcy. So the U.S. government uh, created this law and created this body called the um, Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico, made up of eight individuals, one appointed by the governor of Puerto Rico and seven appointed by the president of the United States and the Congress. 
And basically, those seven individuals, the uh, principal individuals, because the government of Puerto Rico uh, board members ex officio, the seven core members are all private citizens of, of very high standing. Some are judges, some are professors, others are business people. And they were approved and vetted by the White House and the Treasury Department back in 2016. And they hold these roles um, uh, for no money. They're voluntary. Um, they work very hard uh, together with the government of Puerto Rico and all the different stakeholders to sort of resolve all of the fiscal issues that exist. Um, they also hired, uh, at the beginning of uh, the launch of the board, uh, an executive staff consisting of an executive director and a general counsel, and then a staff that's grown to about 40 people who do all of the day-to-day -day work of negotiating and helping to move forward uh, the fiscal health of, um, of Puerto Rico. There's a lot of interaction with the U.S. District Court in, in New York that oversees bankruptcy proceedings. And um, my job as ethics advisor was created via the bylaws of this board, um, basically to do a couple of things, which has kind of blossomed into more of a real chief ethics officer role uh, that, that most of you are familiar with in, in your own companies. But it's an outside role. I'm a consultant. I'm uh, independent. And so it's kind of a, a hybrid role where uh, I help the board members with their um, mandated federal financial disclosures every year and every quarter. Uh, I uh, very proactively work with them on conflicts of interest issues, uh, which come up, uh, allegations come up all the time. It's a very fraught situation in Puerto Rico, given the economic difficulties. And then, of course, the hurricane made that ever so much more difficult and, uh, and a really hardship to the people of Puerto Rico. And so there's a lot of complicated political, economic uh, governance issues. And so my role is helping the board and the staff with uh, the typical things, but also so, some things that have uh, that are kind of unique to the situation because of the, the political um, implications and the crisis that we're living through uh, in Puerto Rico. And so there's a code of conduct, there's training, communications. Uh, we're about to launch um, an outward-facing ethics website, uh, which I will be doing a blog for and answering questions. So we're becoming more uh, sort of proactive. And lastly, just to sort of cap this off, um, the idea of the ethics program um, was uh, not mandated by law. It was something that the board chose to do. And um, there's a very strong sort of um, push by the executive director and the board uh, to be the model of transparency uh, for the island so that we can help with creating more transparency uh, in, in uh, both the government and society uh, in Puerto Rico as well. So I'll leave it at that. Um, so, do you have any further questions? I, oh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I'm a zillion, but I'm going to actually move on because um, I want to make sure that I get to everything else because you're talking sure. about rising boards and also talking to, um, you're not, not only are you an ethics advisor to that board, you are a member of a lot of different boards and have been over time. And not only that, you, you've made an effort to not only beyond them, but supporting others in the compliance community and also women who want to do this. So I wanted to ask two questions. First, you know, why do you think it's important to have ethics and compliance professionals being on boards? Yeah, so I've been advocating for this for years and years. There was a piece that I co-wrote with my good friend and colleague, Jacqueline Brevard, who used to be the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer of Merck. We wrote, co-wrote a piece for the conference board exactly 10 years ago in 2009 called Ethics in the Board. And we wanted through that piece to sort of um, do a clarion call 
to uh, boards everywhere uh, that they needed to think about ethics and have ethics report into them and what would that look like. So we gave a lot of ideas on that, which are things that, you know, the, the well-developed, uh, enlightened companies and boards are doing. Um, but we also made a pitch in that uh, piece, and I've spoken and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, written on this topic since then, um, the idea that you need to have a diverse board, not only from a gender diversity and uh, race diversity and global footprint diversity, um, even age, but also functional diversity. You need to have people sitting at the table, at the board table, who have that lens that we uniquely have. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really incumbent on us as ethics and compliance professionals to develop the chops that are necessary to occupy those kinds of elevated uh, and, and high responsibility positions. And I, one of the pet peeves I've had with our own community over the years is that we need to out pigeonhole ourselves or uh, extricate ourselves from the pigeonhole um, of being just the ethics and compliance person. We need to uh, reach sideways, upwards and downwards to connect and network and, and uh, really collaborate as best possible within our organizations with all the other functions and the business units and the C-suite and the board so that uh, also we bring to the table not just the ethics of appliance lens, but a very, very uh, savvy business uh, sense. And I think that's been lacking sometimes in our community. And, I, you know, for me, one way that we're going to get into these boards is by demonstrating sort of that broader, multifunctional, uh, multi-experience um, that that is uh, necessary to be at, at the level of the board. And so I, I would recommend strongly, especially to women who have typically, you know, occupied a lot of the functions that maybe don't make it to the board, like HR and general counsel and ethics and compliance and risk management, that, that you need to develop your business skills and your uh, savvy and demonstrate it while maintaining your independence as the ethics and compliance person. It's a difficult balance, but I think it can definitely be done. Um, and, and that will get you sort of at the, to the level of being someone who might be considered by a board at some point. And I think we have to break down a lot of barriers still. There's a lot of obstacles, but, but we need to demonstrate our value as well. And, and that's really what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think, and I'm just going to ask you your opinion. I think that's something that we can, as women or as clients, officers, anyone, you can practice that every day in your current role to make sure. Absolutely the business and, you know, having started in a fairly new role, I mean, the idea of learning what, you know, oftentimes what some of the major concerns from a compliance standpoint will be, but to understand your business's specific concerns and how you can be a benefit to them is something that I think is a practical tool that we can have every day, no matter where you are. And in that's fact, closer. I, I totally agree with you, Lisa. And, and in fact, you know, one of the things that I, I went to, I, I worked at four different companies before I t started my own business. And every time I started, um, maybe not the first time because the first time is the first time, but the other three that I went to, I would spend a very good chunk of time at the beginning of my job just listening, learning, connecting, networking, um, and, and really understanding the business, meeting all the people that I could meet, um, connecting with them, um, you know, nurturing the relationships with them. Um, and, and really getting to understand their pain points and their positive points and, and being sort of of service to them as well as uh, hopefully having them help us implement our ethics and compliance program. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And after saying that, um, the number of women on boards does continue to lag. But um, what is your thought about the California law, which requires publicly traded companies to have at least one woman on the board of directors? Yeah, so, you know, some people consider that controversial. Um, We we have some history from some of the EU countries where um, board quotas have been mandated uh, to the tune of like 30 or 40 percent, depending on the country. And um, that track record has been mixed as well. I remember when when they first were imposed, for example, in France, um, there were some scandals there because some of the um, captains of industry uh, nominated and placed their wives or mistresses on some of these boards. So that's not exactly, um, you know, moving the cause forward for equality <laughs> on boards and that sort of thing and diversity. But, um, you know, kidding aside, I think that... W- Everything is moving so slowly. Um, there's, I've been in the, you know, in the workforce for over 30 years now, and I thought I, you know, I thought I thought things were going to progress a little faster, and they really haven't. And so I think at some point you have to sort of rattle some cages and shake the tree a little, and and say, okay, um, we're going to need a little kick in the pants, just to use a bunch of different metaphors, um, uh, to to get people to focus on this issue. And I think. I think things are changing, and I think one of the areas where um, the, the, an opening might might uh, also uh, be helpful um, to diversifying boards is the fact that ESG issues, for example, are becoming much more important, and digital disruption issues are becoming more important. And we have a lot of women that are very uh, experienced and and valuable um, that could be on boards. Um, so I think there's a, a double whammy of, of uh, positive impact that we can have from some of these things of getting the right women on these boards. Uh, and if it, if it has to be a few quotas, so be it. You know, uh, I think we need to move this forward. Absolutely. I, it's an interesting time and it's an interesting discussion. And, you know, given everything we've talked about now and all of the things in your career we haven't talked about, you know, what advice would you give to uh, women either starting out in compliance in businesses and the profession, you know, or people trying to move into this area? Sure. Well, I think this is an area that's always going to be a little difficult because I think all of us who have had time experience in this area, I think especially you know, some of us who are a little older and we look back and we say, hmm, why did we do this? And I think part of the, one of the things that sort of unites all of us who do this kind of work in ethics and compliance and, you know, also in risk management and corporate responsibility is a sense of change agency. You know, we're people who don't want to leave well enough alone when we see a problem. We want to fix it. We want to help the company become better, stronger, more effective, uh, more ethical, more profitable uh, in a sustainable way. And so I think that it's really important for uh, for uh, young people and, and people coming into this profession to understand that it's, it's complex, it's difficult, it requires you to be a bit of a fighter, but a very diplomatic fighter. Um, and then I think in terms of evolving uh, into more senior roles, um, the diplomacy piece is really important, but also this um, interconnectedness with other functions and understanding the business. I think those things are critically important. If you cannot forge those relationships of trust and collaboration, uh, or you don't understand or make an effort to understand the business really well, um, those things will be obstacles to progress, I think, in your in your profession and in your career. 
uh, in the spe specific space and beyond if you want to become a board member one day and that sort of thing. So I really recommend um, working hard on learning the business, making the contacts. Uh, when I say networking, I mean connecting. I don't mean just uh, you know quick conversations. I mean really collaborating. And one of the most challenging things of all is if you're working in a organization where the CEO doesn't really believe in this stuff, maybe gives it a rubber stamp or the board is the same, uh, or the culture is toxic or difficult, uh, where people, you know, have uh, sort of territorial uh, uh, feelings about what they do and they don't want you to be involved or collaborate. That's the hardest thing. And I've encountered that multiple times. And um, if the tone from the top isn't strong and, and strongly in favor of this kind of thing, that's where those kinds of um, you know, uh, fiefdoms happen and difficult sort of relationships happen. And I've counseled a lot of people over the years and myself included <laughs> when it comes to, um, you know, uh, being in a really difficult, culturally toxic environment, finding the allies that are really there, um, is so, so important. And I did have a couple of situations where I really needed those allies because the rest of the organization uh, was really culturally not healthy. And um, last but not least, vote with your feet. That's kind of what I say. Uh, <laughs> if things get too hot and, and they don't let you do your work, do not compromise your professional integrity. That is the most important thing that you have, uh, both psychologically and, and emotionally, but also professionally. And so I've had a few situations where I've had to vote with my feet uh, or I've been told to vote with my feet, that kind of thing. So anyway, um, that would be my, my advice. It's a little long-winded, but, uh, well, you know, there it is. It is, and, and I appreciate it a lot. And I think, you know, it's coming from somebody who's, you know, had to do all the things that you're talking about and learn them. I mean, I really appreciate that and really appreciate your time. And, you know, thank you so much, Andrea. And on behalf of Mary Shirley and the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm Lisa Fine, and I hope everyone has a good day. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.